Psalm 104 is a passage that we used early on in this series on the theology of food. Look, if you would, at verses 10 through 15. He makes springs pour water into the ravines. It flows between the mountains. They give water to all the beasts of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. The birds of the air nest by the waters. They sing among the branches. He waters the mountains from his upper chambers. The earth is satisfied by the fruit of his work. He makes grass grow for the cattle and plants for man to cultivate, to bringing forth food from the earth. Wine that gladdens the heart of men, oil to make his face shine, and bread that sustains his heart. Last Sunday in our study, The Theology of Food, we moved from the Lord's table to hospitality, to reconciliation, and finally to gratitude. What I'd like to do today is to back up a bit and revisit and examine further the issues of reconciliation and gratitude. I said this last Sunday, that the community of faith, the church, is not simply a gathering of diverse people into a group. Just get a bunch of different people together and and we will call them a church. Because a group does not have yet a place of communion. And communion is absolutely necessary for the church. To participate in the body of Christ is not only to have Christ in me, as the one who transforms me, it is also to have others in me. Such a way that I know of life, or what I know of life, what I need, what I desire, what I enjoy in life, makes no sense apart from fellowship with others. But a life of genuine fellowship is not easy. It isn't simply that we refuse to give ourselves to others. It is that we find it hard to imagine the intimacy of communion that God speaks of, that God desires, because we struggle with fear, suspicion, perhaps even arrogance and hatred. It's also because we are predisposed to put on a good face, to hide our wrongdoings. We discover that we have much to be ashamed of. All relations are new if they are marked by reconciliation rather than alienation. But I think there's some things that we need to clear up with the matter of reconciliation. First of all, there is a difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. We have looked at this before, but I thought we should revisit it. I can and should forgive someone who has sinned against me, whether or not they know that they have sinned against me, And whether or not they acknowledge that they have sinned against me, if they refuse to acknowledge that they have sinned against me, I still am to forgive them. We hear this from Jesus in his teaching. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but seventy times seven. We hear this from Jesus on the cross. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. I can forgive someone whether they like it or not, whether they know it or not. Uh, Forgiveness is not prized, I think, in our culture, and I've said this before to some of you, that if someone apologizes to you for something they have done against you, and your response is, I forgive you, don't be surprised if they are unhappy with that response. They would rather you say, well, don't worry about it, it's not a big deal. 
But if you say, I forgive you, then that implies that they've some, done something morally wrong. And it's like, wait a minute, I apologize. I didn't say I'd done something wrong. So we can forgive someone whether or not they want to participate in the process. However, this is not true with reconciliation. The only way I can be reconciled to someone is if they admit their fault, ask for forgiveness, and I forgive as I have been forgiven. In Jeremiah 3, we hear God, through Jeremiah, calling for reconciliation. Go proclaim this message toward the north. Return faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will frown on you no longer, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. This sounds like forgiveness. But the next verse speaks of reconciliation. Only acknowledge your guilt. You have rebelled against the Lord your God. You have scattered your favors to foreign gods under every spreading tree and have not obeyed me, declares the Lord. See, in the first verse, we hear a declaration of grace, a message of grace, a call to return. But reconciliation can only happen when God's people would acknowledge their sin, their guilt. And then they would turn from what they were doing and return to God. Jesus was known for eating with outcasts and sinners, as we read or heard today in the promise of forgiveness. He was criticized for this. People are saying he's gone to the home of a sinner. But we saw that Jesus rejected the social systems that excluded people simply because of the way that they were. But we need to understand something. If you read the Gospels carefully, not everyone was reconciled to Jesus. While Jesus ate with outcasts, there was no reconciliation with those of the religious establishment. And what are we to make of this? Although it is not spelled out directly, I believe that it is clear, that sinners and outcasts turned from their sins to Jesus. That's why he was willing to eat with them. While the religious leaders saw that they, they had, there was nothing wrong with them, they had no need of forgiveness, no need to change their lives. So in Matthew 9, we hear these words. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, Matthew had been a tax collector, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. I would submit to you that the sinners, in quotation marks, ate with Jesus, did not continue in their lives of sin, but turned from their sins and their sinful actions. I would immediately add, however, that this is not an absolute matter. For surely there were those who came to eat with Jesus who wanted to hear what he had to say, who knew that there was something wrong with their lives, but then after hearing the good news from Jesus, decided that they would in fact return to their previous way of life. But the implication of what we find in Matthew 9, the passage I just read, which is found also in Mark and Luke as well, those who knew that they had a problem were the ones who came to eat with Jesus. The religious leaders and Pharisees saw themselves as healthy and not of anything. They didn't need anything that Jesus had to offer. This raises another matter, and I digress a bit here. But can we 
Should we be friends with people who are unbelievers? And the answer is yes. Absolutely yes. But there should not be any confusion about this one thing. We do not approve of the wrong that they do. Some, mostly unbelievers, have taken the example of Jesus to make a case that a real Christian, a true Christian, a true follower of Jesus, will make no moral judgments about a person's life. And therefore, if you are truly a Christian, you will not care about how people live their lives. And if you do, then there's something wrong with you. That can't be true, though, because we see in the life of Jesus that he condemned the religious leaders for what they did. He did, in fact, make a moral judgment. On the other hand, we do read in Luke chapter 7 that Jesus ate in the house of Simon the Pharisee. When it comes to the matter of reconciliation, we are to take the first step. Let's be clear about that, as Jesus did. 2 Corinthians 5, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. As God's people, we are to take the first step. We are to be agents of reconciliation, while at the same time we take a stand against that which is wrong. That is, we may welcome sinners while not approving of their sin and perhaps even condemning their sin. Jesus did not approve of what the outcasts were doing, but he offered an alternative to how they were living, and that was to have new life in him. I don't think it's a black and white issue. I think it is walking a tightrope, that we are in fact to be open to sharing our lives with those who have rejected God. Because who knows that God in his grace may through our lives bring them to the truth. And yet at the same time, there needs to be a stand where we say, I do not approve of what you're doing. I certainly will not participate in what you're doing, but I do not approve of what you're doing. And they may say, well, I thought you were my friend. Why are you judging me? They say, well, I'm not necessarily judging you. What I'm saying is what you are doing is wrong and I can't be a part of it. Jesus is often seen as sort of an ollie-ollie income-free with sinners, and so people could continue living their lives as they were and still be friends of Jesus. I don't think this is the case. And we see this in the fact that the religious leaders were not his friends. He would not, he would not say, oh, you can keep doing what you're doing. He condemned them for their lives of hypocrisy. That's the first thing about reconciliation. The second, and we talked about this last week, is that we should not limit the matter of reconciliation to human relationships. I mentioned last week, Wilsborough writes in his book that the church, through much of its history, has suffered from a reconciliation deficit disorder. That is because we have two mistaken beliefs, that God, first of all, is only, cared, only cares about human beings, and secondly, that we as human beings can flourish while the rest of creation wastes away. From what we've seen in this series and, and beyond, we know that this cannot be true. First of all, to say that God only cares about human beings, the creation in Genesis 1, the creation account, tells us that God proclaimed his creation to be very good. This is the way it had to be because God's creation is a manifestation, a physical manifestation of his love. 
Job learns from God that God delights in his creatures. Not only those that have utility, that have what we would see as a purpose in our lives. God's purpose is to reconcile all things to himself, not simply people. And secondly, the notion that we can flourish while the rest of creation wastes away, this cannot be true. We do not live alone or on our own. For us to live, others must die. Plants must be eaten. Animals must be slaughtered in order for us to eat. Without the deaths of others, we have no food. This is not a necessary evil. Rather, it is a reflection of what we see in the Trinity. This mutual indwelling and God's creation is to reflect this. This true reality. True life is lived through the gift of others as our experience of eating confirms. However, let's be clear that the death of others can in fact be evil from which we should repent and ask forgiveness and seek to be reconciled to God's creation. I mentioned this in a sermon last year. I looked it up in my notes. In 1967, The Doors released their second album of that year. Quite amazing. And the final song on the album was When the Music's Over. In the lyrics, we hear the following. What have they done to the earth? What have they done to our fair sister? Ravaged and plundered and ripped her and bit her, stuck her with knives, in the side of the dawn and tied her with fences and dragged her down. While this speaks of the violence done against God's creation, we need to think, for the purposes of this series, of the unnecessary violence found in the production of our food. In our eating, as is demonstrated in the Lord's table, we are to be reconciled to our fellow eaters, but we are also to be reconciled to what we eat. How we prepare to eat, how we eat, the character of our eating itself demonstrates whether or not we appreciate and understand the wide scope of God's reconciling ways with the world. This isn't simply limited to the matter of how animals are grown for slaughter or how they are slaughtered and more. It also points to plant life, the poisoning and genetic manipulation of plants the degradation and erosion of soil, the polluting of our waterways, and more. It seems that rather than caring for God's creation, we seem focused on a new trinity in our lives, comfort, convenience, and control. And ecological relationships are manipulated to serve a narrow human aim. It's all about us. What we find in our culture is that we divide and manipulate the world to our own glories rather than God's. And I would argue that for this reconciliation to take place, we must acknowledge our sin. We must acknowledge our relation-breaking ways of eating. And we must seek, we must look and search out how we can be reconciled to God's creation in the matters of food and eating. I think this would be a series in itself, but it is something for us to think about. The second matter that I want to revisit is that of gratitude. In the most recent edition of Critique, which is put out by Ransom Fellowship, a ministry that we support, and I think Dan put this upstairs, uh, the, to- the main topic is found on the front cover. It's called Nourishing Gratitude. 
sort of fits in with what we're talking about. Um, in the article on gratitude, Dennis Hack mentions the work of Alain de Botton. I don't know if I'm saying his name right. B-O-T-T-O-N. He's a Swiss writer and philosopher, and I would add he is an atheist. Um, he wrote a book several years ago called The Architecture of Happiness. He discusses the nature of beauty and architecture and how it is related to the well-being and general contentment of the individual and society. This year, in January, he put out a book entitled Religion for Atheists. And he looks at some of the more interesting and consoling benefits of religion. He's an atheist, but he says religion does have its benefits, even if you don't believe in religion. He suggests that rather than mocking religion, agnostics and atheists should instead steal from religion because the world's religions are packed with good ideas on how we might live and arrange our societies. Among the things that, that atheists can learn from religion is how to build a sense of community, how to make relationships last, how to overcome feelings of envy and inadequacy, how to be inspired to travel, how to get more out of art and reconnect with the natural world. But what I found interesting, and Dennis mentions this in his article, is he writes on gratitude. This is a bit extended, if you'll bear with me. One of the differences between religious and secular lives is that in the former, one says, says thank you all the time. When eating, going to bed, waking up, etc., why does the secular world tend not to say thank you? At the most obvious level, there seems no one to say thank you to. But more importantly, offering thanks for relatively minor aspects of life risks appearing unambitious and undignified. So the sort of things for which our ancestors bowed down, we pride ourselves on having done enough work to take for granted. Would we really need to pause for a moment of gratitude at the oily darkness of a handful of olives? or at the fragrant mottled skin of a lemon? Are there not greater goals toward which we might be aiming? In our refusal, we are attempting to flee a sense of vulnerability. We do not say thank you for a sunset because they think there will be, we think there will be many more, and because we assume there must be more exciting things to look forward to. To feel grateful is to allow oneself to sense how much one is at the mercy of events. It is to accept that there may come a point when our extraordinary plans for ourselves have run aground, our horizons have narrowed, and we have nothing more opulent to wonder at than the sight of a bluebell or a clear evening sky. To say thank you for a glass of wine or a piece of cheese is a kind of preparation for death, for the modesty that our dying days will demand. That's why, even in a secular life, we should make space for some thank yous to no one in particular. A person who remembers to be grateful is more aware of the role of gifts and luck and so readier to meet, the, when, meet with the tragedies that are awaiting us all down the road. I think it is a remarkable admission on his part. But Dennis wisely writes after this quote, I do wonder why we as Christians, at least in America, tend to be known more for being negative in outlook rather than for being thoughtfully, humbly, and unrelentingly grateful. One reason, and I suggested this last week, is the absence of delight. That we are not delighted with God's creation. 
A desire to express gratitude wears the rights for the world requires that we first sense that it is worthy of gratitude. In a culture that is ignorant about where we get our food, just ask a child where milk comes from and you'll get a, you'll get a sense that we are ignorant about where our food comes from. And yet we are very conspicuous in our consumption. Why do we say thank you for something that we know little or nothing about? As those who have been reconciled, who have new life and view life in a new way, we should delight in the wonder of God's creation, in the provision and nurture that God has given us, that he has made pleasing and delectable. The experience of delight presupposes a sustained patient, sympathetic, and affectionate embrace of creation. But think a moment. Our culture focuses on spectacle, on what we can see. And the world and God's creation is reduced to a spectacle. And this is significant because it reduces us as the perceiver and the thing that is perceived what transforms it. And suddenly there is this great distance between us. Because of technology, things are lifted out of their ecological context so that they can be presented again or represented in fairly stylized ways. I don't know if you have noticed this has happened in the last five years or so, particularly when people have smartphones or iPhones that rather than participating in an event, people want to take a video of it. And I'm almost tempted to go up to someone and to slap down the phone and say, forget recording it, experience it now, embrace it now, be delighted now in this event. And that certainly is true of food, that I think we are more comfortable with pictures of food and pictures where food comes from, than food itself. There are people who are paid a lot of money to make that to be the case. And in the process, we do not delight in God's great creation. In the words of a postmodern philosopher, what we find in our culture is the death of the real and the omnipresence of the hyper-real. I'm reminded of a, a cartoon that Daniel Borston had in his book, uh, The Image. A woman has a baby in a pram, and another woman is coming up and sort of saying, what a beautiful baby you have. And the mother answers, oh, that's nothing. You should see his pictures. We've lost the ability to delight in the real. And therefore, we cease to be grateful. Let's say for the sake of argument that one is filled with delight at God's creation. It may be that in the delight you become speechless, that words fail you. Again, Dennis in his article on gratitude quotes Bob Dylan from his most recent album, uh, Tempest, the song Soon After Midnight. I'm searching for phrases to sing your praises. I need to tell someone, 
It's soon after midnight and my day has just begun. Perhaps there's something to learn here. that There are times when words do not come. That's okay. Because it gives us an opportunity to pause in silence, to consider and to reflect on what we are about to eat. And to think about what we are about to do by eating. As Wiersbe writes, by becoming silent, minds can be opened up and made attentive to the world. Just to sit there for a moment and be filled with delight and gratitude as a result. When we say grace at mealtimes, we do not merely say a few words over our food. Or it shouldn't be all that we do. Rather, we demonstrate a willingness to be transformed. So that our eating of life is also a sympathetic participation in the ways of life. When we say grace, this thoughtful gesture takes us beyond ourselves as eaters and into the memberships of creation. That we find that God has provided us with food in such a wonderful and mysterious way and sustains our lives through this food. Thanksgiving, the giving of thanks, unites us in solidarity with God's creation and it confirms our status as creatures among others. We are dependent upon the creatures of this planet to stay alive. To say grace at a meal is to understand that eating is a sacramental act. It doesn't mean that somehow we somehow make it more spiritual than it was before. But we acknowledge that nourishment in our eating is a life-giving quality and it is not exhausted by what we eat. What does this mean? Life itself is not a material thing or a purely material thing. It is a demonstration of divine power that is at work within us. In the material thing we call the body. We live in a time in which we are conscious of the various aspects of our food. Um, and I got a package out as I was typing this out. Calories, calories from fat, fat, saturated fat, trans fat, polyunsaturated fat, monounsaturated fat, which I didn't know there was such a thing, cholesterol, sodium, potassium, total carbohydrate, sugar, protein, and let's, let's be honest, for some of us in this congregation, due to health issues, these, these matters are very important. That we play a strict numbers game because of health, that we might continue to be healthy. But in doing so, we all may lose sight of a profound truth. That is, when we eat sacramentally, that is, when we eat correctly, we refer what we eat as well as the life-giving power in our food to God. We say to God in gratitude, I have life because of what you have provided. As Christians, and particularly at this time of the year, we see life given its definitive expression in the Incarnation. Jesus, through his body, through his living, shows us what life means and what it looks like at its best. 
he shows us that the spirit is not opposed to the material. It's a mistake that various heresies have made and continue to make. That somehow that the spirit and the material and the body cannot come together. When we say grace at our meals, we say, no, that's not the case. That through this material food, God's spirit is giving me life. Otherwise, food is reduced to fuel. And we're playing a numbers game with how many carbs do we need and avoid the carbs and avoid the fat and avoid this. Seems to be a game of avoidance for many of us. Rather than saying, God, by your spirit, through this food, you are giving me life. That life isn't simply a matter of fuel being sort of shoveled into our mouths so that we can continue to live a bit longer. When we say grace and give thanks, we refer the world to God. We bear witness to the life-giving spirit of God in the world. And this requires a realization of sorts that the world is never simply a material fact. Food depends upon the sacrifice of others, all grounded in and maintained by the self-living, the self-giving love of God. To reduce creation to a stockpile of commodities that exist to serve us is really to miss the point. And this is a point oftentimes that is hard to remember, particularly if you shop at a warehouse store and you just see aisles and just see the food stacked up. It does seem that food is simply a stockpile of commodities. When that happens, food ceases to register as a gift, as something that has been given to us. It becomes something rather that can distort and even destroy life. And if nothing else, we see this as we struggle with matters of obesity, but also those who struggle with starving themselves because they see themselves as being too fat. Wiersbeth tells a wonderful story, and actually I found this uh, in another book that he has written on the Sabbath. The story of his grandfather, he seemed very much to love his grandfather, who was a farmer. It tells of his uh, treatment of chickens. Let me read to you. As the farmer charged with their care, the care of chickens, he did not think it was enough to make sure that they were well fed and housed. It also mattered to him that they experienced delight suitable for a chicken. On summer days, he would therefore take a scythe and a bucket and cut fresh grass for them. As he approached the chickens, they came running, clearly excited about the grass offering they were about to receive. As they ate, my grandfather grinned and chuckled, clearly delighted that he had contributed to their pleasure. Well, up to this point, it sounds sort of a nice sentimental story that someone's telling about his grandfather. But let me continue, or rather, let Wiersma continue. Chickens were never treated as economic units. They were precious gifts of God given for the nurture of our family, both in the form of eggs and meat. To be worthy of these chickens, however, required that we offer ourselves to their well-being and happiness. When he sat down to eat these chickens, 
He could be thankful in ways that few of us can because he knew he had first given himself to them. His daily work was a form of worship because it was a lifting up of God's gifts so that they might be properly received and cared for. The taste of his chickens, in turn, was deep because it included the memory of good work, the experience of mutual delight, the knowledge of a hospitable and gracious God, and the pain and joy of sharing in the lives of others. It's quite remarkable and quite different, I would argue, from our experience of food today. Rinsba then goes right on to write something rather startling. To receive food as God's gift is an extraordinarily difficult thing to do. Do you agree? He continues, our perennial temptation is to want to possess and control. For the Israelite nation, it took 40 years of testing and wandering in the wilderness to begin to learn that life's nurture and sustenance come in the form of manna from heaven. A surprising, unknown, unmanufactured, and uncontrollable gift. I would suggest to you that it is when we are grateful, when we say grace over God's gift of food, that we transform mundane eating into an act of solidarity with creation and an act of communion with the Creator. Life is a miraculous, inexplicable gift. It is something much, much more than economies of exchange. When we give thanks, we express or we can express our commitment to remember as best we can that what we have is a gift that we are a part of creation and that we are to be reconciled to God's creation there are times when I have been corrected by people in the congregation I remember one of those times when Lonnie corrected me we were talking about whether or not it was necessary to say grace in public. And I foolishly said, no, it's not. And Lonnie insisted that it is. That we are to be grateful. I would argue we could, we could be grateful without saying grace. But we are to recognize that what we are about to eat is a gift from God. It is what God, by his spirit, uses to sustain our lives. It is a part of creation. We are a part of creation. We are dependent upon food to stay alive. And we should give thanks. Next Sunday is the fourth Sunday of Advent, Christmas Sunday. And so I will be speaking about Christmas. But the following Sunday, the last Sunday of 2012, does it seem possible? We will look at the matter of food in heaven. Will we eat in heaven? I think you may be surprised. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are people of our culture, of our society. Our thinking, 
I think is far too modern, is much more chemical than it is biblical. For those of us who have conditions that necessitate that we can only eat certain things at certain times, we may tend to view food in a very calculated way. And, and indeed, we have to calculate what it is that we are going to eat. But we may forget that it is a gift from you. In the same way that you work through medicine, you work through food to sustain our lives. The life we have comes by your spirit. It is, it is sustained by your spirit. How easily we forget this. I pray that in some small way what has been said today would cause us to think. To think about the gift of food. To think of our need of being reconciled to your creation. To think about the place of gratitude. We have so much to be thankful for. But particularly for the food that you provide. How generous, how gracious you are. We pray for those who will be traveling this week to spend the holidays with family. We pray that you would give them safety and a, and a time of, of joy with family. We pray in particular for Lucy and Laura as they travel. Give Laura strength, patience. Watch over little Lucy as she flies for the first time. Pray for Stephen as he's in New York City, away from family on the holidays. Keep him safe. May it be a beneficial time for him. I thank you that we could gather today to worship you. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. We pray in Jesus' name.